Welcome to Critical Transit, episode 37. Today is Friday, October 18th, 2013. My name is Jeremy, I'm your host, and I'm very excited today. we got a, a excellent conversation with Scott Bogren from the Community Transportation Association of America, a great organization that's doing a lot of advocacy and support to smaller transit agencies. Um, you know, not the New York and Chicago's of the world, uh, but the small places, the uh, Athens, Georgia, the uh, little, I'm trying to think of other little towns, the rural and small city transit agencies, and we talk a lot about uh, trying to do things a little differently, and thinking, um, I don't want to say thinking outside the box because it's a way overused metaphor uh, by a lot of transit managers who don't have a clue, um, and probably some who do, so don't get offended if you say that. Um, and so, you know, we had a great conversation, and I think uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to you. Um, Scott has been in the transit industry for about 20, 30 years, I think. So, uh, you know, he knows a lot of people, and it's just just so much uh, experience in dealing with, you know, trying to deal with uh, creative situations and that, uh, you know, many of us in the bigger places are just kind of doing what we've always done, just kind of ambling along and just like, it's like, oh, we've been running this route for 100 years. We'll just keep doing it the same way. And so, uh, you know, we definitely talk about that uh, in particular. So uh, so coming up, that's exciting. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, you will notice that I uh, lied again. Um, well, it wasn't my fault. Um, I can't seem to learn not to promise things that I can't deliver. Um, I was trying to meet up with Andrew Austin from Americans for Transit, who was in Minnesota this week, um, but uh, it didn't work out. We we tried really hard, and um, it kept falling through. And so uh, <laughs> Andrew is on his way back to D.C. right now on, on Amtrak, uh, so that's that's very exciting. And uh, hopefully catch up with him uh, next week, you know, for the next episode. Um, and that'll be good, because there's a bunch to talk about. Um, the government was uh, shut down and uh, has now reopened. Uh, at a cost of $24 billion. I love how these uh, these fiscally responsible Republicans, uh, they voted to pay the people who have been, who were on furlough. Because basically what happened is, you know, the government shuts down, right? So you can't afford to pay people. So every non-essential government employee is told to, uh, to go home. Um, you know, you're not getting paid. You can't come into work. You're not allowed to come into work, right? Um, and then... Every everyone who is deemed as essential, because um, there's a difference between essential and non-essential in, in that terminology. So, like, let's say let's say you're um, you're working for a transit agency, right? And if you're doing like some I don't know if you're doing some data data analysis, right? You're gonna, probably going to be a non-essential employee because if if there's like you know a horrible blizzard or if there's something that you know something that goes wrong that that makes it very difficult for you to get to work, um, then you know it's understandable that you wouldn't go to work. Um, whereas if you're an essential employee, if you're like, say, a bus driver, um, the transit agency needs to operate, um, you know, and, and so if there's a blizzard, you still need to get to work. So you're an essential employee. So the federal government has very much the same thing. And uh, so, you know, with all the different agencies that, that it, you know, it operates, um, you know, and so, um, so if you were a non-essential employee, you didn't go to work and you weren't getting paid. And if you were an essential employee, you still weren't getting paid, but you had to show up. Um, and in fact, like, uh, I had, I know one person who was, uh, recently traveling by air and he told me that, you know, the line was, was really, really long. It was like out the door of the terminal and like down the street. And, uh, and when he got to the counter and he, after like an hour, he asked the, the person at the counter, you know, like, oh, is it always this busy? And, and, uh, 
And the guy was like, well, look, you know, he's like, we're on furlough, so we're not getting paid, and a lot of people are just calling in sick. Um, so that's what happens. And uh, Chuck, Chuck Hagel today, the Secretary of Defense, was uh, saying that if this kind of stuff continues, you know, people are just going to be looking for other jobs because they can't, you know, all we've done is we've punted this, uh, if you haven't heard, so the government uh, agreed on a resolution uh, late Wednesday, and the government reopened on Thursday, um, and the agreement is basically just like, we're just going to do this again in January 15th. Um, and we're going to, we're going to agree to sit down and negotiate in December. Um, how's that, how's that worked out before? Um, not so well. So that's, that's where we stand. We're going to do this again. And so Chuck Hagel, the secretary of defense is, is say, you know, who's a pretty powerful guy because everybody worships the military. Uh, he's saying that. We, you know, if we keep doing this, people are just not able to rely on their jobs, and uh, they're going to be looking for employment elsewhere. Because you just, you know, I mean, think about that, right? It's like if you don't know, if you're not going to be allowed to work, like you got to have make a budget and everything. You know, if you could, um, you know, and just work for some for a, a private corporation that's not going to do this crap to you. Um, and historically, the government has been a very reliable place to work. Um, there are higher numbers of minority uh, individuals in government positions. Uh, because of you know the histories of discrimination and everything and the affirmative action policies that that public employees tend to have, um, so uh, public employers rather, so you know there's there's higher so of course you know just like everything else, you know it disproportionately affects minorities, uh, and so but but in any case, um, if you had to go to work and you didn't know if you were going to get paid, um, you you know I mean wouldn't you be looking for another job? So, you know, you're going you're gonna to lose people. And that's, this is why I get so upset when people are always talking about, oh, we got to, you know, we got to not pay people as well. We got to, we got to um, cut and, you know, we do wage freezes and all these other things. And it winds up costing you more in the end because your people are going to leave. Okay. So if somebody leaves, now you got to train somebody new, um, which means you're paying two people to work at once because somebody's got to train them. Um, maybe it's even more involved than that. Um, I mean, think of a case like a bus driver. You know what it takes to train a bus driver? It's lots and lots of work and effort. And, um, and then somebody's, if somebody's been there for, you know, 10 years and, and then they, they leave because you're not paying them properly or treating them properly, and, and then what? You know, now you've got to retrain. Now you've got to hire somebody new. Um, you know, okay, you're going to pay them a little less than you were paying the other guy, but you've got to spend all the resources on training and the person may not, ha- you know, doesn't have this same impeccable safety record um, and may be fine, but, you know, it doesn't have that 10 years of experience there that's going to help them make good decisions and deal with situations and all that. So um, that's why I got so annoyed about that. But anyway, um, so so the government uh, has reopened at this, this staggering cost of $24 billion lost. Um, it's, like, been an estimate. And, uh, you know, for, for like, just, just like the government expense, it's not like, you know, that's not like individuals who lost money on, on stuff. I was reading about uh, in New York, the, the state of New York agreed to pay for the reopening of the Statue of Liberty, which I don't like that in principle because it's it's basically uh, deciding what we're going to fund. It's kind of what the Republicans were trying to do. It's like, okay, we're going to shut in the government. We're only going to fund the things we don't want to. We want to fund. You know, we're going to we're going to pay for these these parks so our our you know rich constituents can go to the parks and enjoy it. But we're not going to pay for you know um, we're not going to pay for the WIC program for for uh, 
low-income women, <laughs> infants, and children. You know, we're not going to um, we're not going to pay uh, transit agencies. We're not going to pay um, you know all these things that, that need um, people who need assistance. You know, healthcare uh, healthcare credits and you know, everything else that, that people need. And uh, so that I, I don't like this that idea because it's that's the point of legislation. You know, you make legislation, you decide what you're going to fund. You can't have like a couple people afterwards go like, well, I'm not going to vote for anything unless you don't fund this. Can't do that. Uh, that's wrong. So uh, I don't generally don't like this. Uh, but I was reading about in the case of the Statue of Liberty, where um, the city was saying that they are losing a lot of money on tourists, and um, it's not just the city tax base, which is certainly taking a big hit, but it's also people who uh, make their living based on that. I mean, if you go, if you've ever been to New York, you know that there's tons of people uh, that are you know basically catering to that tourist market, just selling shit. Um, Usually cheap shit, like, uh, you know, T-shirts, hats, uh, you know, I mean, little, those little um, Statue of Liberty, those little foam fingers, you know, the foam hand with the little finger sticking up, and, you know, all these, all these like, stupid things that, that people are selling, um, not to mention that, you know, the companies that, that provide transportation, the ferries, a privately operated ferry to the Statue of Liberty, um, and they, um, it's like probably like $20 a ticket or something crazy like that, and so they make a lot of money, you know, uh, doing that, and, um, well, now if they, now they... The government, the, the Statue of Liberty, for example, the Ellis Island shuts down. Well, now, okay, now nobody's going there. So now these companies are, you know, they still have to pay their employees. They're still going to maintain their fleet. Um, you know, there are a couple of transit agencies that um, that I read about that that had to either shut down or scale back service because of this shutdown. Um, one of them was the one that serves part of Yosemite National Park, um, and they they said that about half their ridership it was is tourist related. So. They cut their service in half. And there are a couple others that just had to cancel service entirely because when you're running, when you're a small agency, um, you know, if you're in New York City Transit, you can probably, you know, you have huge expenses, but you can probably, you know, you're not, the thing is, you, the way this stuff works is if, if you've already drawn your grant, then, you know, you have the money already. Um, but it's just that, you know, it depends when it gets dispersed. So if you're, if you're plus somebody like New York City Transit, this is a, the biggest example, um, you you have a lot of money in a lot of different places and you you know do creative things like shuffling stuff around and you can you know if you don't have to you know if there's an expense that you don't have to pay until january well you can you know you have that money saved up so you can use that now and then you can and it gets to be a mess and it's very time consuming and it probably costs you more money because you got to pay people to do this stuff and it's a mess but you can do that um whereas if you're a tiny little transit agency that's serving a thousand people a day uh maybe that's not tiny little but say you're serving a thousand people a day uh you know, you get you don't get your September payment. You don't get reimbursed for September because you know October first government shut down, and now you're not getting. You don't know if you're going to get reimbursed for October. Now you're running out of money uh, because you had to put money ahead already. Um, you know, so then basically, what do you do? You basically just tell all your employees that hey, you know, you're all on furlough. I can't. We can't pay you. We don't have any money. Um, and as horrible as that is, you know, you're not when you're running a transit agency. You're not especially in this climate, you're not likely to have a lot of money in reserves uh, because you've probably spent it all to avoid fare increases and things. Um, and you can't, you know, it's not like you're a, private, a big private company that can just, you know, that has extra money. Like, you know, if I have a bunch of employees and I'm a CEO and I'm a decent human being, uh, you know, I, maybe I have some extra money that I can just use to, to pay people and it's not a huge deal. But if you're, you know, in the public sector, you, you have no money you can rely on. Like, you can't just spend that of your own pocket to, to pay people. It's just... And you're not going to have that money. You can't do that. So it doesn't. It's not a. 
it's not relevant. So um, the whole thing is just completely fucked up. Everybody else in the world is looking at the U.S. going, you know, what the hell are you guys doing? You can't even can't even fund yourselves. Um, I'm sure the credit rating of the U.S. is going to go down. And, uh, you know, maybe if we weren't spending so much money on the military, then we could uh, at least get uh, and, and highways. Then we could, yeah, <laughs> two examples of, of many. Uh, then maybe we could, uh, you know, actually stop uh, borrowing so much money all the time. Um, so, yeah, government shutdown is bad, and uh, that's one of the things I want to talk to Andrew about. So hopefully uh, get him on the show next week and we can we can chat about that. Um, but for now, the, the government is, has reopened, and uh, I especially, especially want to talk to him about uh, what, how it's affecting the, the transit world. And, um, you know, both on, like, on the regu- regulatory side and also on the... Uh, you know, in the actual delivery of transit side, I guess the operation side. So, um, let's see. What else we got to talk about? So, yeah, so I'm going to play this interview uh, that I have with Scott Bogram. This is really, really great stuff. And I think um, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And you can find more about uh, Scott at uh, ctaa.org. And uh, he is on Twitter at ctmag1. Um CT Mag One, like Mag, like magazine, and I will put that uh, that online as as well. Um, and yeah, so here goes the interview. So I'm here today with Scott Bogren, the communications director for the Community Transportation Association of America. Um, it is an advocacy group based in Washington D.C. that uh, tends to focus on a lot of the smaller transit systems. And uh, Scott, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, cool, and um, I guess b- before we uh, go any further, I have to give you a hard time for uh, stealing my initials for your podcast, um, the CT Podcast. You know, I, I get so tired of saying community transportation, then when you go into our whole name, Community Transportation Association of America, you um, you lose a lot of people. So I never thought of, uh, of, of critical uh, transportation and what you guys are doing, but I, I guess we did kind of steal that name. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. We all we all work together. So um, uh, maybe you could um, just give us a give us an overview of um, what the Community Transportation Association does, and uh, maybe maybe you could talk about the the difference between as, as you sort of put it on the website um, between public transportation and community transportation. Sure. Well, you know we've been around since the late '80s, and our our roots are really in transportation uh, for rural communities. Uh, communities typically under 50,000 in population, and we've grown over the last 25 years or so to add a lot more urban areas and particularly smaller cities, always though with the basis of trying to develop transit that is responsive to the community. Uh, One of the things uh, when I talk to our members, and I can always tell when they're CTAA members, by the way, they answer one question. When I say, what do you do? What do you do for a living? If they say, I run buses, they may or may not actually be our types of members. When they talk about, hey, my goal is moving people, then I think it fits very much within kind of our framework. And that's kind of how we view community transportation is it's something that's responsive, that looks at what community needs are and responds appropriately. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And increasingly, it really encompasses all forms of mobility, 
So the traditional ideas of buses and vans and that kind of thing, but, you know, complete streets and, and, and bike ped and, and even some private forms of transportation, we view them all working together in, in, in a perfect world cohesively to in, increase everyone's mobility in a community. Um, and it's and it's it sort of um, it sort of brings up the idea that there are so many different forms of of transportation systems out there. Um, can you give us a sense of uh, based on some of the organizations you've been working with? Can you give us a sense of uh, what the different types of systems are out there? Sure, I, we'll go. Uh, we, we like to say, if you've seen one community transportation system, you've seen one. They're all different. They're all unique because the communities and, and the populations they serve are. But if I was to, to generalize, you're going to find most of our systems are um, smaller in scale and operating with a uh, diverse set of investments into their whatever creates their systems. And they are um, they're, they're serving seniors and older Americans. They're serving non-emergency medical type trips. They're doing specific job access and, and, and employment-based trips. They're doing all those things just as much as they are running a fixed-route bus operation. Uh, mobility management and that is now really one that we've brought into the community transportation fold as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and explain that uh, mobility management is uh, well. Maybe you just explain what that is because sure. that's something that a lot of these big city people don't really know. Well, mobility man- management really—you could almost think about it as, um, in the specifics, it's kind of this one-to-one discussion between an individual and a community that has a mobility need. Um, it can be that they may be a person with disabilities. It can be that they are low income and don't have a car. It can be they don't want to have a car. Whatever the need, the mobility management process says we're going to figure out the best way to make that trip happen, whether it's on a fixed route bus, whether it's a demand response vehicle, whether it's a shared ride situation, whether it's bike share. Uh, mobility management is a way to kind of turn those trips into the most sustainable and cost-effective way. But what mobility management needs in any community is a diverse set of transportation assets that can be played into it. If it's going to work right, that's really what it needs is, is, is a variety of transit assets that all can kind of be put together. So sort of just trying to figure out what, what makes the most sense for individual trips and needs and just sort of piecing things together and have all, everything all work together. Yeah, that's the goal. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, hold out that, you know, we've hit that goal <laughs> everywhere or, or in many places, but that, that is, that's definitely the goal because uh, uh, the work we're all doing is to make these trips happen. I, sometimes I think people forget that. And we, we get all bogged down in these discussions of capital funds and operating funds and all the craziness that's going on here in Washington right now. The real goal of all this is to make these trips happen, whether it's keeping a senior uh, independent and not having to be prematurely institutionalized or getting somebody back and forth to dialysis or work or shopping. That's the goal, making these trips happen. And when, when they happen cost-effectively, when they happen in, in the best way possible in that community, then, then you've got something and you've got something to build them. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the things I've always struggled with as, as a planner is just, you know, you have this growing percentage of, of seniors and, and others living in communities that are not really designed for transit. I mean, when, you know, we're not talking about people living in Boston and Chicago. Now they retire and they just walk less. But, uh, you know, I mean, those people too. But, but talking about people living in suburban and, and rural locations that maybe haven't had transit and, and now, you know, they're not able to drive and, and they're not able to walk far. And, um, and sort of how, how do I'm wondering if you could talk about how we can efficiently and effectively meet this need for mobility without compromising or, you know, without basically just depleting all our funds and, and all that, you know, how do we like make that work? Right. Um, right. And does it compete with the traditional role of transit, which is just moving large numbers of people um, without any uh, flexibility? Well, as a planner, you'd first of all understand that we've got to, get in the mode of, of anticipating these kinds of needs and building community structures that can work with a, with a community or public transit component right from the get-go. You know, the, the retrofitting or the going back and trying to squeeze these things in, always more expensive, more difficult, more challenging. And I, I, I'm, you and I could talk about that at length. Absent that, the real challenge then, particularly in an era right now where we've got limited funds, or certainly at best kind of flat investments at the federal side, is to figure out the best ways and most sustainable and cost-effective ways to do this. And that has not always been the methodology that transit systems have used. They've done what's comfortable to them, uh, they've they've re- they've re- reacted um, using kind of the tool sets that they've always had, and that's the challenge: is to get out of that mindset and start to look at different ways of doing these things. And part of what we try to do is kind of broaden the definition of public and community transit. We we think of van pool and a shared ride situation. We think uh, car sharing. We, we, those are all key, key and growing components of this. And when you talk about um, the expanding population of seniors, when you talk about the expanding kind of health needs of Americans, uh, uh, non-emergency health care, whether it's, I mentioned dialysis, but it could also be chemotherapy or all sorts of other types of occupational and functional therapies that are going on. These all have a transit a mobility component in them, and we um, we really feel like whether it's rural or urban, you've got to get a sense. Uh, we 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 tend to measure the benefits of transit. We we tend to measure our success by how many people are riding, and and in urban settings with with fixed route operations, both rail and bus, hey, that works, but. We also think that we've got to start to look at the outcomes from these trips and, and, and measurement of, of the impact in the community because, you know, uh, in a rural area, the population is, is, is dwindling and the mobile population is, is oftentimes the first kind of group that leaves. So, so the population goes down, but the transit need actually goes up in a lot of these rural communities. And we've got to figure out ways to serve that community cost-effectively, and, and it's not traditional transit. It, it's, it's just not. It, it, that's not going to work, 
and that is certainly not anything that we would call sustainable. Right, and um, you know, what what are some of the ways that you've uh, that you're familiar with that uh, different communities are dealing with that need? Well, you know, you see some communities that, for instance, will um, uh, contract out some services, and 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 will look at um, communities where there are even. Um, uh, say, a, a taxi cab operator that may be able to do some of those types of trips, not in a 30-foot bus with one person in it, but maybe in a Prius vehicle. And, and you and I can both figure out, well, the operational savings there is going to be significant. Um, there's also, I think, a lot of move towards trying to get um, uh, technology to help out in these things so, so that we're... we're batching as much as we can groups of people together. One of the anomalies of rural service that many people don't understand is uh, here, in, here in Washington, D.C., people want to get on the service and off the service as soon as possible. That, that, is, that, that is the goal of most of the passengers, get to, get to my destination and get moving. Rural operations, particularly a lot of them that serve seniors, oftentimes you'll have someone that says, oh, I don't mind staying on the bus for another hour as we go to pick up somebody else because that may be their only social point in the day. They're very isolated. So batching people together makes trips more cost-effective, and the riders don't mind, as a perfect example. There's technology that can make that happen and, and, and make that a lot more, um, more cost-effective. Also, we've got to look at, from a technology standpoint, different types of vehicles that are more fuel efficient, uh, that are more appropriate for the services. And, and we, we're seeing some of those come online now, and we, we'd like to see, see more of that. Those are two of the, the most obvious ways that you can kind of make these things a little bit more cost effective. But you're absolutely right. Service in suburban communities and rural communities and to these more specialized populations, it's not easy. It's, it's difficult. And it, it relies upon people to think about their services and, and a lot differently than they may have in the past. Which is a good thing, I think, because you have um, typically, in the, especially in the bigger cities, um, you know, you have often transit agencies just kind of doing what they've always done. And if you look at the typical big medium city, you know, you, the, most of the bus routes pretty much resemble the streetcar routes from the 1930s. So um, and I think it, I think it's good, and I think there's a lot that even some of the bigger cities can learn. Um, you know, even cities like Boston that are, and, you know, Philly that are, you know, running these big 40-foot buses in traditional ways in, in suburbs uh, maybe can learn a lot from these, you know, different types of initiatives um, like, you know, call and ride or flex routes or, or any of these other things. It, it's a mindset, you know, and, and whenever I'm visiting a, an urban operator and we talk and you, and you ask them about route structures and stuff and they'll mention, that, well, this route's been, we've been running this route for since 1920, I always kind of cringe because I, I just can't imagine that the community hasn't changed in 90 years, yet the service is the same. And, and um, it's just a mindset overall that we've got to break through if transit in all its forms is going to kind of make the transition into the next, the next great American transportation uh, era, you know, where, where we, we it, you, you probably like I, we, we study transportation, we, we, we've learned a lot about it, 
you know, we're, we're, we're ending the Eisenhower highway era right now. And, and the funding mechanisms that built that era. And, and the biggest thing I think we're dealing with right now is, you know, what comes next? What is the next way that we're going to, that transportation is going to um, form the future for the country? And that's what the battle is right now, I think, in, in, from the 35,000 view here in Washington when we talk about policy and legislation. Everybody's trying to figure that out right now. Yeah, and um, yeah, speaking of that, I mean, they, you know, everybody is always saying, um, you know, when you interview people, they're always saying, you know, the biggest challenge is, is always funding. Um, but, I mean, I don't know that we can expect much from the federal government because they can't even fund themselves right now. But um, is there, uh, like, what do, how do we deal with that issue? Because it's, it, I feel like it's always going to be an issue and uh, transit is never going to be completely self-sufficient. Um, are there things that we can do to... Uh, address some of these funding issues, maybe public-private partnerships. Are those actually useful, or is that just kind of a, something that's thrown around? Oh, I think it's really useful, and 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 we've got to do that. Uh, you, you know, you you're you're exactly right. The news out of Washington this week, if that doesn't tell our transit leaders in communities around the country that to solely depend on Washington is a foolish way to proceed, then I don't know what would. And uh, the partnership between state, local, and federal in building these systems, that needs to continue. But let's look at where we're being successful right now in the field. And, and at the local level, when we can get transportation and public transportation on the ballot, whether it's a ballot initiative or a referendum, whatever you want to call those things, we're winning three-quarters of them at the local level. That's a complete disconnect from what you hear from what, 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 where Washington is right now. And um, that's going to play out here in D.C. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's not going to be simple or easy. And in the meantime, we can't lose these services because they're needed more than ever right now. So the local issue, I think, is a good one. You brought up the public-private type partnerships. A lot of times people just think of private sector investment in transit and they think of um, contracting for service. And that's one part of it. But we've got to figure out as an industry, in, in a city like Boston you mentioned, uh, you look where there are concentrations of businesses, of hotels, of office complexes, of restaurants. They're in and around transit. And so all, those folks are benefiting from transit, yet, th- yet we've got to figure out a way to kind of construct a funding system that we can grab some of that benefit and and have those systems able to in those those private entities invest in the system that is is bringing customers to their doors mm-hmm. yeah it's a it's a good good point i i like that um just you know thinking outside the box a little bit and um i, I know that transit is becoming more and more popular on on the state and local level i mean there have been we've seen any number of, of uh, ballot initiatives uh, and other referendums and and um just there are new transit systems that, that keep coming out you know really small rural transit systems and so i think uh people are thinking about transit more and it's um it's growing i guess you see that continuing absolutely i mean all from from young people who clearly are driving less, are less apt to want to get that driver's license right away, uh, and want to live in communities that have 
mobility options to the growing population of seniors who, for safety and other reasons, ought not to be driving, to the health care issues, to the ability, I mean, there's environmental issues. All of these things are driving passengers to the, to the doors of the nation's buses and trains. The next thing we've got to do now is to figure out the role of that whole network in where we're headed from a transportation perspective in the future. And, and you know, Washington is, in, is right now not in a place to even have that discussion. But it will be. Sometime in the future, those things will come up and people will start to understand this transportation infrastructure's importance in the overall economy of the country. We've all got to be ready when when the policymakers are ready to have that discussion to make it effectively. Mm -hmm. And um, before we uh, finish with Washington, um, I did want to bring up the, I, I still think of it as new, um, MAP 21, the, the transportation authorization legislation, which provides a lot of the funding and, and the regulation and such for transit. Um, I personally think it has too much focus on security and, and not a whole lot, you know, nothing else has really changed much, but um, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that and um, where you see that sort of stuff moving. Well, the, the MAP 21 was one of those things where you say, um, you know, kind of be careful what you wish for in our industry uh, because uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bill, it's a law now, that, that incorporates ideas that traditionally are going to be five- and six-year rollout plans but only has the funding to do them for two years. So this, this hard deadline we have, which is just about a little less than a year from today, you know, September 30th, 2014, MAP 21 expires. And, and so the idea of, of trying to, within this current congressional environment, work on something, it's, it's really difficult. But uh, I would agree with you. Uh, the safety issues that are built in MAP 21 are probably the most significant kind of change, you know, the Federal Transit Administration is now a safety regulatory body, which it never was before, and, and uh, sometime this week we're supposed to see their first cut on what those rules or regulations are going to look like, but we continue to be concerned, and I certainly hear it from our members around the country, that we are building up so much regulatory infrastructure between the funding sources and the actual service on the streets. And the more you put in between those two things, the less money that is there to actually make these services happen. That's really the concern that I hear, again, you know, broadly stated from most of our membership when it comes to MAP 21. It's just that, it's just that uh, they're being asked to do a lot of things that, that um, take away from what they view as their, their mission, which is making these trips happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, yeah, so that's, I think that's good. Um, so I wanted to um, shift gears a little bit, and um, you have a podcast, as I mentioned. Um, and uh, so and you interview people in the transit industry in uh, different places. Um, so tell me about um, how that got started and... Um, Maybe you want to talk about some of the uh, some of the most interesting people that you've spoken with. Well, uh, thanks for the for 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 the, for the, the chance to plug uh, the, C, the, <laughs> the other I'll call it the uh, the other CT podcast. We um, you know, in as a I'm a I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade, and 
you just have to understand that people in this day and age get information in such different ways than the way certainly I was trained 30 years ago when I was in journalism school. And podcasts, to, to me, just became apparent that that was a way that a good number of our members could just listen to something while they work. And it's another way to try to get some of these ideas uh, across to them um, besides writing them and putting them in magazine articles or newsletters or kind of the more traditional ways that an association has done that. Uh, so uh, I've been at CTA for, for 25 years, so I know a lot of people in the industry, and that was really what I thought was, I know a lot of interesting people that are doing really cool things when it comes to transit. I just want to sit and chat with them for a little while and, and, and then uh, share, share what they're doing that way. We've talked to a number of interesting folks. Uh, I actually recorded a podcast earlier this morning with the folks who head up Williston, North Dakota's transit agency, and um, they've experienced the population growth because of the energy boom in that part of the country. The population of Williston in three years went from 12,000 to just a little under 40,000. Wow. And so, yeah, that was kind of an intriguing uh, angle to take is, well, wh how's transit responding? What's the impact on transit? Where are you headed in the future? Those are the kind of conversations I like to, like to have. And we've had managers and elected officials and other journalists. And I, I, just like you, you try to, try to spread out the opinions so that there's something for everybody. Yeah, you talked about the, uh, the um, I guess you hosted a rodeo not too long ago. Yeah. That's a, um, that's a perfect idea, you know. I, I, I like to talk to drivers. Uh, we often forget in this industry, the management has all sorts of great ideas about customer service and blah, blah. But the actual interface with our customers, that's the drivers, and they're important. And if uh, uh, you use transit, I'm assuming I use transit every day, a good driver, a friendly driver, makes all the difference in the world on how that trip goes. Yes, absolutely, and I, I, you know, personally, I've always, um, I've always had trouble with a, a lot of people. Um, sort of, I mean, you know, if you look at what the, the pressures that the drivers are under, and you sort of, I, I tend to give the drivers a lot of slack, but I, but I agree, it definitely makes a difference um, in your, in your, how your that interaction goes, and um, there's so much, there's so much focus, so much pressure on on the driver in, in general, and I find in a lot of, in a, in a lot of, especially the bigger transit agencies, there's this this tension between the the employees and the management, which is just seems sort of antithetical to, you know, running a good service that you know, people care about. No, I, to I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and I hate to see when we see that because um, uh, those, those, those frontline employees are, in fact, the, the face of our industry. And when we uh, do things that kind of uh, alienate them, it's not good for business. You know, I, I take a bus uh, to the train every day. And uh, Every time I get off the bus, I look at the driver and I say thanks. And it's so funny how so many of them look at me and they're like shocked that some, someone would do that. But <laughs> it's, it's really, I appreciate it. I can sit and I can listen to podcasts or read while they're driving. It's, it's a nice thing to be able to just thank them on the way out the door. Yeah, and uh, hopefully um, this this podcast, both CT podcasts are, are on people's uh, MP3 players as they're, as they're on the bus. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So, and you know, as we mentioned, bus driving. Um, we one of the things that I was thinking about, and, and I think you mentioned on, on one of your shows recently, is that um, 
transit managers can tend to come from one of two places. Um, one of those is is uh, they start as a bus driver and you know they work there for many years and then they work their way up within the system, um, and so they know. You know they know a lot about the system, and uh, but they may not know about how transit is elsewhere. Um, and on the other hand, you have people coming from other fields, um, just you know found the job that uses skills that they already have uh, as a transit manager. And um, you know and those those have obviously that has pros and cons as well. Um, I don't wonder if you want to if you want to talk about that and see is is one of those better than the other? Or? Well, it's a good, it's a, that's an interesting topic. Uh, Having visited transit managers in every state in the country, uh, I've never visited, I've never gone to Hawaii. It's the only state I haven't traveled across looking at transit, but I've talked to managers from Hawaii as well. One time has somebody said to me that they always wanted to be a transit manager, that they, that was what, that was their, their stated and outright goal from a certain period in their lives. All the others found their way to it in, in, in varying ways. And um, I personally, I always like it when I hear that somebody who was a driver or a dispatcher ends up running a system because I think that can cut through some of those management uh, employee tensions. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's useful. But I also think that... Um, we need more younger people coming into the business that have different ideas about the way they want to live and the the way they want their communities in which they live to kind of um, be. And, and they're looking at different at mobility. They're looking at technology and its use in much different ways. And I'm really kind of excited to see how the next generation of transit leaders takes the business because um, they're going to have those chances, and and uh, they're just going to they're going to look at it in, in with fresh eyes. And um, I think the business, our business, always needs fresh eyes. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, let me talk about just doing what you've always done, and we always need to be rethinking and and uh, changing things up. Um, so, what I mean, what do you see as uh, your priorities uh, going forward? Well, obviously, we would, um, whether it's, you know, we can, we can use that phrase, reauthorization of these laws, but what we really want to see is a, is, is a much more diverse set of funds set aside to fund the transit portion of the surface transportation bill. And by that, I mean, we've got to get away from just having the gas tax be the sole component that funds uh, transit. So I'd like to see uh, an exploration and from a policy standpoint, testing of all different methodologies because um, just like anybody's business needs a diverse income stream, transit is going to need that in the future. I'm also really keen on alternative fuels and, and technology and, and whether it's the, through G, you know, GPS type stuff or apps and handheld equipment, the ability to um, tap technology as a way to make transit more affordable, more sustainable. Uh, I was just reading a study yesterday where you realize that, you know, what percentage of all the transit 
Fairfax income is what what percentage of that is 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 um, spent handling the fares and 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 dealing with all the security issues that go along with that and we're starting to see now payment for transit right on your phone and you know in the future I'd love to see that same system be universal for all forms of mobility so that I could use my go card or my go app on my phone I could pay for my fixed route bus pass I could pay for the bike share when I get off that I could pay for a taxi later on or a or some other sort of shared ride later on that all that making it easier for customers um, it's coming it, it and and how we kind of bring that into the transit field will be um, really a critical way we, we kind of forge the, the, the future of the, of the industry yeah, it seems to really make a difference like the real-time information and uh, you know especially in cold areas and um, and the universal fare card is something I've always been sort of you know talking about and, and uh, it hasn't gotten a whole lot of traction but um, you know I, I you see that with highways you know if you if you take a car and you, you drive it across from New York to California you know you could you have the same little electronic transponder tag that pays your tolls the, the whole way um, you know and when you pay for gas, you know it's the same credit card the whole way. Uh, but you know, when you're you're in transit, you know, I get off, you know, you get off the bus in, in another city, then you need another fare card, and then well, maybe it's another system. You go to, um, I mean, San Francisco's Bay Area is working on has been working on this now, but you know, like San Francisco, New York, these big places where you need you know six different transit cards, and um, I think that's definitely a real barrier to use. Yeah, it, it is, and and you know the country. The, We've spent a lot of time investing in transit in urban areas, in rural areas, but the connectivity between those areas and understanding that we're a much more regional um, country now than we may have been in the past. Uh, we work regionally. We go to school regionally. We've got to find technologies that serve and match up with actually how people are traveling which gets back to really where we started here, rather than asking people's travel habits to conform to the way transit is. It's got to be the opposite. we we got to look at how people want to get around and figure out the ways that transit and the technologies that are necessary can make that happen. All right. I think that's a, a great place to wrap it up. Uh, anything else you wanted to add? No, I just really appreciate all the work you've been you've been doing and and furthering this conversation. It's it's an important one, and I uh, 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 as the first time on the receiving end of a podcast interview, uh, I appreciate uh, you uh, uh, inviting me to join. Excellent, and, and likewise, uh, keep up the good work. Um, thank you, Scott, and uh, I will talk to you soon. One last thing, um, I have a Twitter feed that a lot of people probably uh, may or may not be aware of, but. If you're looking for information on the community and public transit field, you can follow me at ctmag1, and uh, that's, I, that's a pretty active feed, and I'm always uh, uh, looking for new ideas and things to, to promote through that, so uh, thanks for allowing me to uh, do that. I'm so uh, I'm, I'm bummed, and um, I'm a little embarrassed that I left that out. Uh, <laughs> there you go. So, so. Cool. Well, thanks, um, Community Transportation Association. It's ctaa.org, and uh, on Twitter, it's ctmag1. And, uh, yeah, I'll post all the links to all that in uh, the show notes. Appreciate your time today. Thanks again to Scott Bogren of CTAA for joining me. Um, again, ctaa.org. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at ctmag1. 
and uh, hopefully we'll get to have Scott on in future shows because that was that was very informative, and uh, so hopefully I can consult with him in the future. And uh, you should check out his podcast, um, the the uh, infamous CT podcast. That uh, I don't think I've ever called this the CT podcast, so I think I'm going to let him get away with that. I think that's going to be it's going to be okay. Um, plus, we all we all like each other because um, we're all trying to work together. So. Um, you should check out his podcast, um, and you can find that by going to ctaa.org, and you can click on somewhere in, I think, media, podcast. Um, you can find it, and I'll put a link as well. So that would be great. So um, back to news. Um, the Well, I was when I was first trying to record this show, I was hoping that I was going to be talking about, and I was planning to talk about, the potential BART strike. Uh, now there is an actual BART strike. Um and you know this is this is actually the second strike in a few months, and it's very discouraging because uh, you know obviously if if you public services need to be reliable and consistent, and um, you know we can't have this kind of thing going on. Um, and and the media is always very quick to blame the union, right? Okay, the union it's always framed as like the union is the one uh, that is that is doing the strike. The union is uh, you know. The union is the one that's that's causing this and whatever, um, and that may or may not be true. And I mean, if you look in this case, there is um, some great information coming out that, and, and it's very, you know very similar to uh, the last time that there are concerns that the union has related to safety, uh, you know, and, and access to to care uh, for injuries and things like that that just aren't being addressed. And I, I feel like, um, you know, I obviously I wish these things would be addressed, you know, in, in other contexts, but a lot of times the strike threat is the only power that the union has to say, you know, you need to address these, these concerns. Um, so, you know, I'm going to play this, uh, this video here and, uh, that I basically it's a clip. Um, it's not, well, you're not going to see a video, but, um, you'll hear the audio. It's basically all that's important here. Um, of, uh, somebody who is from the, the nation magazine who's interviewing, uh, some employees and, and a union rep and just, just talking about, you know, what is, what is going on and, and, you know, why they're out there. And, um, and hopefully some of this will start to start to deal with the, uh, you know, these privileged comments that keep coming up and it's like, Oh, just be happy. You have a job, you know, and all this, this crap. And which for the life of me, I can't understand. It's like, if you, if you have a shitty job and somebody else is, is getting treated better than you, shouldn't you be saying, I want to be treated better. I want to be paid more. I deserve to be paid more. Instead of being like, oh, well, I don't get paid that. I get treated like shit, so you should get treated like shit too. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I don't understand this. This is, it's just like such moronic. And you hear this stuff from such people who are like otherwise reasonable people. And it's one of those things that, you know, somebody is just like totally like really progressive, just on board with like, you know, all the goals of, of, um, you know, transit and environment and just, you know, and sustainability and, um, you know, respecting other people and, you know, taking care of people who need help and all these things that are just good. And all of a sudden, then when it comes to this, the strike, it's just like, it's like, oh my God, it's just the union is like the worst, these are the worst people ever. And I, and you know, they don't care about the riders. And I, I just, I mean, some of that could be true. I mean, there, there probably are some people, some, uh, you know, union members who really aren't interested in the riders because they don't use the service or whatever. But, um, you know, as we've, we've talked about uh, many times before, transit is so important to communities and 
you know, the, the whole community depends on transit system being in operation. You know, even even if you don't use it, right? Uh, it, it allows people to move around in a way that is not not total gridlock. It brings people to businesses. To, it brings employees to businesses. If you if you run a business, maybe you never use transit ever. Um, you know, at least some of your customers and your employees are going to be getting there with public transit. And so, you know, this is and, and and even if they're not getting to work that way, they're relying on it for other things. And it's so it, transit is is so important in communities and. So I think everybody pretty much understands that, and nobody really wants to go to this extreme. And you can see this several-day delay is sort of, you know, why it sort of shows how that that is the case that that you know, the union does not want to go on strike. It's not it's not their goal to to go on strike and, and mess things up. Um, so I'm just looking right now to see if uh, AC Transit has in fact gone on strike. Um, looks like AC Transit strike is postponed. Um, and why is AC Transit BART strike is called off? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting wrong information here. Um, in any case, whatever I'm, I'm, I'm going to clarify this, but um, it seems like they're still not actually on strike. So that's good. Um, but yeah, this is a case of misinformation. <laughs> going to have to like edit this whole thing out. Um, no, so so basically, what's what's going on here? I think is it's just this hostility between workers and management that Scott and I talked about. Um, and I guess if if I knew that there was a part strike when <laughs> we spoke, then I would I guess would ask him about this. But I mean, you know, he was saying that when you have this hostility between management and employees, it just creates this this relationship where uh, nothing is is easy, nothing is good. Like you need to have a good relationship with your employees because and anybody who hires anybody. Um, you know, for like, unless you like McDonald's and you're like, oh, I'll just treat everybody like shit and they quit, I'll just get somebody else. But, um, you know, in any other business, if you're, if you're hiring people and relying on them to make decisions, and I mean, you got, <clears throat> excuse me, you got these operators out there that are going out there and, and so say, say, okay, a BART train operator, right? You get one person piloting this 10 or 11 car train and, you know, thousands of people on board and like, or maybe a thousand people. And you, you know, just a lots of people constantly. You're putting this one person in charge of so many people's lives and your reputation and everything. Why would you want to have a relationship, you know, an, an adversarial relationship with these people? Like, don't you want them to respect you and you respect them, and you want them to come to you with concerns? And and if there's if there's something wrong, you want them to let you know. Um, you want to be able to go to them with concerns. You want this like good relationship because otherwise, what happens is then you get then you get a you know problem employees and. You know the union is used to being in this adversarial position, and they, you know, it's just sort of a part of an attack on the union. And they, then that's where you get these people that, you know, the union will stand up for people that are like, you know, totally should be fired and stuff like that. Um, which, by the way, is is a you know really overblown thing. It doesn't really happen all that often. Um, but okay, so we got um, so we got a strike has been. This is from yesterday's. <laughs> oh no. Okay, uh, Bart is on strike. I was correct. Um, I was just finding news articles from yesterday when Bart was not yet on strike, and it was confusing me. So Bart is on strike. Um, however, AC Transit is operating. Apparently, uh, Governor Jerry Brown issued uh, used his authority, uh, which I don't really understand, to uh, postpone a to put off an AC Transit strike. 
this is actually something that's been a bit of a problem in, in some places. Like I know New York, this has been a big problem where there are laws prohibiting strikes and, um, you know, then it, just, it sort of essentially renders the strike threat uh, ineffective um, because the transit agency is like, well, you can't, they spend all their efforts on, you know, trying to stress that they not allowed to strike and, you know, prosecution and all that instead of actually trying to resolve the issue because they're worried about a strike. So AC Transit is actually, uh, you know, is, is doing, I mean, It'd be interesting to speak to somebody with AC Transit. I don't know if you know anybody with AC Transit that uh, can talk about this or somebody who's familiar with AC Transit. That would be great because um, I don't think I'll be able to get a hold of anybody in the next couple of days, but um, if I can, I will. Um, it'd be really interesting to talk to them about what it is that they're doing. It looks like they have some temporary HOV lanes on the uh, Bay Bridge and a couple of the approaches, um, which is great. They should do that all the time. Um, that's actually one of the things that comes out of, of like emergencies, you know, whether it's the, the strike or like, uh, a hurricane in New York and, um, you know, floods in, in various places when the, in the, um, uh, Bay Bridge was, was down at one point. Um, you know, there's, there's, that's a good thing that often comes out is, is that, uh, not everywhere, but in many places, uh, cities and highway administrations will, uh, make special priority lanes for, uh, buses and carpools, because of you know just so many more people uh, being out on the, on the so many more cars out on the, on the road um, producing near total gridlock um, this is something that shouldn't just happen all the time it shouldn't be like only in emergencies because then it's like when it's over oh well, now we'll just go back to normal we'll just go back to the way it always was and it's just that's not good so um, so kudos to AC Transit for all their efforts and props to all their uh, their employees for uh, doing what they can um, as far as employees as the AC Transit, you know, this idea of AC Transit and BART being in, in solidarity. Um, I think there's something you can say about that, sort of just, you know, supporting the other the other unions. Um, at the same time, like, going to work at AC Transit is not, I don't think that's, like, inherently disrespectful of BART unions or anything like that, because, I mean, the strike is still really powerful and stuff. It's like, it's not like AC Transit is just making up for the BART strike or anything. I, was, I mean, they're doing the best they can, but they're obviously not solving the, you know, they're not providing train service that, you know, people are used to. So it's not, it's obviously a big impact. So I don't think it's like you can, you can criticize people for going to work at AC Transit. Um, but if you have a different view on that, um, you know, write in feedback at criticaltransit.com and I will uh, entertain all of those things. I will, uh, I will share it, share it on the show. So yeah, great. And you can go to actransit.org if you're interested in uh, in learning about this this stuff. Um, as for Bart and the union, I believe they're still talking, but it's just not really going anywhere. Um, oh yeah, I was gonna play this video. Um, let me. I think I still have a little bit of time, and uh, we'll come back after. So this video is, if I can pull it up here, um, this video is uh, somebody interviewing some of the uh, Bart employees at uh for the previous strike that happened in july and um i guess there was you know the agreement back then was that they would you know it was like a temporary agreement um and i guess they never really resolved the things the outstanding issues and so as far as i can tell they have the same issues right now yuri holly station agent rep um atu 1555 <laughs> Um, we're having a strike vote. The primary issue is safety. It's, it's safety. Um, in the month of March, I had um, an average of one fatality that I had to deal with with my frontline employees. 
and we're not um, trained as emergency um, response um, first responders and to deal with fatalities is quite uh, um, emotional as well as a lot of my members uh, suffer from PTSD and management just fails to realize that or even acknowledge our safety concerns even with the assaults and injuries as well. And why, why is management attitude towards the workers who do the work so intransigent? I mean they're spending a million and a half dollars for a consultant, outside consultant to come in and why don't they respect the, the workers? You know, that's a mystery to me as well. I don't understand. We, you know, we run the system 95% on time. Um, we're here for all the big events, uh, Super Bowl, World Series, um, all of those different things that we take over 500,000 riders um, to big events. We have a ridership of 400,000 daily. So I really don't understand. Every three to four years we go through this. And what are the kind of givebacks and concessions they want from the workers? Um, they want us to pay into our pension. Um, they've allotted for a 1% increase. Um, they don't want to address the issues of safety at all. They refuse to address the uh, issues of safety at all. So you're saying even though you have serious health and safety problems, injuries, attacks on station employees, they're, they're refusing to deal with that? I mean, why are they refusing to deal with your health and safety issues, and what are you demanding as far as health and safety? Well, they, don't, they do not want to um, bargain with them at the table. They do not want to discuss our health and safety issues, which I find absolutely appalling, um, being that we've had 2,000, roughly more than 2,000 assaults in the last three to five years. And many of your members are out on disability, on stress. Are they having a problem getting proper medical treatment and health care? Indeed, they are. The workman's compensation process is um, deeply flawed, and it's something that we're trying to address, and again, with our health and safety issues. The train operators end up having repetitive motion injuries due to opening the cab windows up and down, up and down. I just spoke with a train operator today who's in her eighth year. After her fifth year, um, she ended up going out for... Um, a minimal amount of time, then in the uh, eighth year, she's out again, and she's going to require quite a bit of surgery, and she'll never be uh, returned to 100%. And is it true that BART has spent money on lawyers to fight decisions of Cal OSHA on your health and safety issues? Yes, they have. Yes, what, what exactly is going on there? Um, I'm not really briefed in that, and I don't want to speak of but, that. But they have fought decisions oh, of Calosha to, to protect the health and safety right. of the workers. Yes, they did. They did. They spent a, a large, absorbent amount of money to um, fight additional safety for um, the trackway employees. Now, it seems like public workers, transit workers, are facing an assault from all different <laughs> levels. I mean, you know, the pensions, they... They're blamed for high pensions. They say that their medical benefits are too big compared to other workers. What's your response to that? Well, the unions are absolutely. We're under attack. We're under, we're under siege right now. I mean, they want to make California a right-to-work state if they could. They brought Tom Hawk in here, Viola Transportation, who's known for um, tra um, privatizing public transportation as well as invoking strikes. So you think he's been brought here for the purpose of really attacking the unions? Oh, absolutely. Union busting. Union busting at its best. And what do you think the response is going to be? We're going to fight. Our feet are firmly planted, and we're going to stand our position. And we're going to let Tom Hawk know that here in California, there's no union busting. We don't do that here. Now, these boards of directors, Tom Rodolovich and other members of the board, seem, I was at the board meeting, seem that they could care less. I mean, they seem to have an attitude that uh, they're going to do what they're going to do, and too bad for the uh, BART workers and the public. 
And it's very unfortunate that they do have that attitude because they don't, with that type of attitude, it's very reckless for our riders, as well as the employees of the district, involving health and safety, and also the day-to-day commuters and their commute, because we do want to continue making the system run. We don't want to go on a strike. We want to go go to work, but we do want what we deserve. Antoinette Bryant, President Business Agent ATU, Local 1555. And what are the issues you feel are most important for your members? Health and safety are our major concerns with regard to um, provisions that we have proposed that will make it a safe environment for our workers and a safe environment for the riding public. And many of your members are coming here, they're on crutches, they have you know, stuff on their foot, they're having accidents, and, and they say that they're having to fight just to get their health care after they're injured. That is absolutely true. We have put forth proposals that will change the workers' comp system, save BART millions, and in effect, make sure that our workers are taken care of, not that they're broken and discarded because they can't work. Is that happening at BART? Yes. Well, yes. Why wouldn't BART want to take care of the workers who they train and get them back on the job so that they can be productive employees? I would not even begin to speak for BART on what they're doing and why. The union also wants to see the bathrooms that were closed in 2001 to be reopened. Oh my God, they're going to open the bathrooms. Uh, some riders feel that uh, the platform is a place or in the train for them to use the restroom when they can't use one down below. They want to see bulletproof glass installed on the booths their members sit in and special doors, which would make it harder for intruders to get inside. So you were hurt on the job, too? Tanika Jackson. So far, my workers' compensation has been okay. Um, But right now, I had a QME back in February, and when she said how long I'm supposed to be out, now they want to do a second one, and they're trying to X me out. I'm still obviously injured, you know. So what happened? How did you get injured I fractured an ankle and two bones, um, moving switches, moving switches outside, you know, we had to, the, the, the rock was a little unstable, so it was a little slippery, so I had to catch myself from falling, but um, it's cases worse off than mine, and right now we just want to make sure that our workers comp if you get hurt on the job if you get injured on the job if it's unsafe practices you want to make sure that you are always compensated because you are here i'm not going to say risking your life but you are here and you want to be able to work safely you want to be able to know that if something happens to you if you get spit on if you get hit that you are protected when you come to work you come to work with the with the thought that you're being protected, not being hurt. You shouldn't have to fight. You shouldn't have to fight. Benefits are used to be. My whole thing is that I'm an avid worker. I come to work every day. I want to work my long hours. I want to go ahead and do my job. I love being a train operator. I love being a train operator. The thing is that if I'm not healthy enough to do that, I can't go serve who I'm supposed to serve, which is the public. I'm supposed to be there for the public. The public is me. I'm the public. So if I'm not there to do my job safely, properly, if I'm not 100% healthy, 
there can't be no trains running. There can't be no station open. And is there problems with other health and safety issues with other workers? Do other workers have similar problems? Station agents. Station agents get attacked on a daily basis. Yeah, you might want to find a station agent to talk to because they'll tell you. But I mean, but, so so why are they fighting you? I mean, you want to get well, you want to get treatment. Yeah. You're saying that they're trying to prevent you by going more and more to exam. I'm not getting all the necessary treatment that I'm supposed to have. Right now, I'm supposed to be going through therapy. There has not been a therapist to touch my foot. I've been injured for uh, over a year, a little bit. And there hasn't been no therapy. I've only been off on rest. I just returned to work. So I am trying to... The thing is that people who love the work want to be at work. They want to be at work healthy. They don't want to be at home. You can't make money sitting at home the way you want to make money when you're at work. I can't put into my retirement and pay my benefits if I'm sitting at home on my butt getting nothing but bigger. I need to be at work being active, giving my doing my job that I'm supposed to do. I was hired for a particular job. I need to be there doing it. Hi, I'm Maureen O'Connor. I'm a... Uh Train operator for Barrier Rapid Transit. You um, also, apparently, the BART management is spending money on lawyers to fight Cal OSHA decisions. I've, I've heard that. I've, I've heard that. I've been uh, dealing with a lot. I'm a union steward as well, so I've been dealing with a lot of stuff locally, and I'm bombarded with all kinds of um, stuff going on. A lot of our um, um, our uh, workman's comp is being uh, switched up and compromised, and our people are getting cut off of their money and forced to have have surgeries they normally wouldn't have. Um, it, it, so, so injured workers. I mean, these lot a lot of injuries, and it's not a joke. It's not a joke. You get scared to go. At this point, I'm I'm worried to go out. I recently had knee surgery, and I'm I'm afraid to go out again until everything is settled because I don't want to get. I you know I've the only source of support in my so, house. So this is a lot of stress for for very stressful workers. I mean, very stressful. Very, uh, horrendous situation. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. We've had some really bad things happen. The conditions for the rank-and-file line workers are pretty problematic. It's pretty rough, yeah. Pretty rough. It's yeah. rough. And There's not too many people that don't have shoulder problems. I have shoulder problems. We Almost all of us have. Do you think Bar BART management wants to push these workers who have been injured out, out and just force them to leave? Is that by, If you don't get in treatment on these injuries... Uh, I think they want us to know that their thumb is on our neck, our backs. Their thumb is on us. I think they want us to know who is in charge and uh, be afraid. That's what I think. So thank you for uh, the nation for uh, doing that. And uh, I, I'll put a link to that article, um, which I, I believe I mentioned the last time we were talking about this. Um, and, and I know I've said this many times, so I'll try to keep it brief here. But, I mean, all this stuff is is largely due to this pressure for budget cuts. You know, you have, for many years you had, uh, you know, you didn't have this stuff go, going on, popping up all the time. Um, you know, you had transit strikes in a few places, but it was mostly over, like, wages and benefits. Um, you know, now we're, there's so much pressure on transit agencies to... Uh, and I'm not I'm not justifying some of this behavior. I'm just saying that there's a lot of pressure on transit agencies to cut, 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 and uh, you know, and they and they will target you know all these these work rules and you know all the, these these things. When you hear work rules, you know, it's these these are things that are being done that that unions have fought for over the years to ensure the safety of of their members. So you know, for example, you might. You know, maybe you're you're cutting a piece of metal. You know, you're required to have a certain. You know, maybe you're required to have certain safeguards there, and you're required to have multiple. Maybe more than one person doing it, or, or um, 
in in some cases there are there are jobs really complex jobs that it's the same person has to do it from start to finish and um you know sometimes you can argue whether that's you know maybe overused but in a lot of cases if it's if it's really complex you know you want the same person to make sure you you know to know how things were left off and what the problems are with that particular thing and so there's all these i I could go through all these examples and i and i won't um but there's all these examples of ways that um you know work rules were developed for ensuring that uh employees are safe and and now you know here they're talking about how uh there's so many people getting injured on the job and um, this is like sort of the hidden side of, of transit that most people don't see you know, the public gets mad at, uh, you know, the trans is late and, you know, they get mad at the operator, right? And I mean, I think everybody listening to this show knows that that's not the operator's fault if the bus is late, for example. Um, but, you know, you're talking about, you have people that are, you know, getting injured and when transit agencies are under so much pressure to try to cut budgets, you know, they're looking at, oh, how can we cut, you know, where can we cut this? So we can raise the healthcare premiums and we can, you know, cut the, change the workers' comp. And I mean, you know, when you go messing around with that stuff, I mean, doesn't it give you doesn't it give you a little bit of pause? I mean, I know a lot of the attitude is is sort of you know among the management types is sort of the same attitude in, in corporations is sort of like I got mine you know whatever um, you know if you don't like it go get another job and um, yeah as I talked about before you know you can't just this is what causes people to to leave you know all people who are able to will go and try to find other work because um, you know you you don't want to put up with this shit so and I mean the the I mean the bathroom issue like well they probably are trying to save money by closing the bathrooms um you know for in terms of uh, they don't want to put up you know bulletproof glass and other things because it costs money you know, all this stuff is, a, is about money here and and, um, and you see this in other places too you know like cutting layover time um and you know and trimming service when you trim the service i mean the, the drivers are your frontline employees they're the ones who have to hear about it and uh you know none of this stuff is is good it's uh Anyway, there's not a whole lot more I can say about this because I, I really hope that uh, that there's a resolution soon that uh, the BART board comes and, and sort of deals with some of these things because it's it's just not a pretty situation and I could see this going on for a long time um, because you can't keep you can't keep limping along with these you know 60 day delays and um, you know like they did um, basically what the federal government did so in January 15th come December and January we're going to be uh, dealing with this again um, it's going to be great. So you may have heard over the weekend that unfortunately there was uh, there were two fatalities over the, over the weekend on, on BART, um, which sort of changes the dynamic of the the strike talks and, and everything else. Um, and the union said, you know, we're not going to be picketing for uh, for a day. We should take a day off in, in uh, solidarity. Apparently, there was a there were employees. Let's see, there were a couple of non-union employees and one union employee who was, uh, you know, a ma- uh, maintainer, track maintainer. They were doing a routine maintenance run. Uh, the train was being driven by non-union employees, uh, probably managers. And, uh, you know, not, not really a huge deal. Nothing wrong with that, really. Um, and uh, one, one union employee had chosen to come into work um, in spite of the strike, you know, not participate in the strike. Um, because some people don't participate in the strikes for various reasons. Either they think that it's, you know, they don't uh, support it, or, you know, they don't think it has merit, or because they just don't, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't have much money. And uh, you just can't afford to lose the money for the for the period of the strike. Now, uh, these are not rich people. So, uh, you know, as much as the, uh, the right-wing media may say, these are not rich people. 
These are people who are making a pretty pretty average, modest living. I mean, it's very expensive in California. So when you hear when you hear people saying, "Oh, these these guys get paid you know sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year," it sounds like a lot to somebody in in uh, you know in Minnesota, for example. Um, you know, in Minnesota, if you're making uh, $40,000 a year, that's considered like a lot. Um, so, you know, it's, it may sound like a lot, but it's very expensive to live in, in the Bay Area. Um, and so for a family of four, you know, you probably need to be bringing home, you know, upwards of $80,000 to um, to survive. Um, or with a family of two. I don't know. I read this in probably the same places that the article that I got the video from. Um, and that's supported by other, by other studies and things. So, um, you know, so when you hear, when you hear this stuff about people being overpaid, it's always, always important to remember like context, number one, and number two, uh, what, you know, the the kind of work that you're dealing with. I mean, think about the kind of shit that bus and train drivers deal with. And, and not only that, you know, having it being, you're an essential employee, so you got to come to work in, in blizzards and, you know, all kinds of horrible conditions. Um, you know, you gotta, and you get, you do a lot of hard work. People work a lot of overtime. You hear, you hear sometimes employees get, uh, you know, some papers will, will quote that, that some employees are making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. That's because you're working a lot of overtime. So, I mean, okay. Yeah. That's, 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 you know, you can be like, well, he's overpaid. Somebody who's working 60 hours a week. It's always going to be cheaper for a big transit agency, um, or really any employer to pay people overtime uh, within a certain reasonable limit than to hire an additional person because you have to give that person benefits and, and all the rest. So it's always going to be cheaper to hire people on overtime. And, and I, I'm i not necessarily a huge fan of overtime, especially excessive overtime, because uh, you know we're dealing with safety-sensitive positions here. And the more people are working, you already have a lot of people who are doing split shifts and, and getting you know odd hours of sleep and things. You know, the more the more you expect people to work, you know, the more stress and, and the higher your crash rate's going to be and air accident rate. So it's, uh, you know, I generally not a huge fan of that, but that's, these are some things to keep in mind when you hear that people are being overpaid and it's like, you know, people are like, I don't make that much. I don't have a pension. So, well, why not? Um, yeah. So I'm not going to go into all that, that, uh, political discussion here, um, cause I've done it before. Um, you can go through the archives and you can find it. Um, but anyway, uh, on that note, I think it's about time to wrap up. So, uh, I think that's about all I have time for. I've gone over again. Um, I'm sorry. I hope you're still listening and, um, I'll talk about other news in the next show. So, um, once again, you can find out more about the show at criticaltransit.com. And, uh, so please go there, share your thoughts, feedback, um, you can write into feedback at criticaltransit.com or use the form on the website. And um, looking to hear from you. Um, still working on the website redesign, but uh, it's coming along. You can find me on, um, I've been posting on streets.mn, like Minnesota. Um, streets.mn is a, a website about transportation in uh, Minnesota. And so, and, and all over, really. I mean, these are the themes that re- reoccur everywhere. And uh, my latest post is about the design of a corridor where a light rail line was added, um, but it's still designed to be very car-friendly, very auto-dominant, very hostile to pedestrians. And uh, we designed a transit corridor that is dangerous for transit users. Good job. So um, so there's that. 
And uh, if you appreciate what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show by making a donation. If you go to criticaltransit.com, you can find out how to do that. Um, that is much appreciated because it helps pay for hosting costs and, uh, and other things that are needed. Um, I need to buy a new microphone, which is wonderful. Um, I'm still using this portable audio recorder, which is working out okay, but um, it is a real pain in the ass because I have to plug it in and to, to transfer stuff to the computer. And if I'm playing a file like I did today and then I need to add something... Then I have to, you know, take it, I have to record it and then plug it in and then do the whole big thing again. It's kind of a pain in the ass. Um, and then I always have to back up the files because uh, I've had some accidents there. And speaking of donations, uh, thank you to Brock Didis from the Sprocket Podcast for a donation to the show. Uh, everything really helps, folks, and, uh, and I really appreciate that. And Brock is a, a huge transit fan, and uh, we've we've talked quite about this quite a bit in the future. And I'm I'm really anxious to get to Portland so we can go on some transit rides together. Um, or maybe I can get Brock to come out to the uh, Great Midwest in the middle of winter. Probably not. So, um, but I should um, Brock actually may you, um, you might want to come on the show soon to talk about uh, winter riding, um, winter biking. Because Portland uh, winters, uh, you don't get much snow, but you get a lot of rain. And, uh, and I think that's important for people to know how to deal with. So uh, maybe we should talk about that. Um, but in any case, um, thank you to Brock for, for that support. Um, it is really appreciated. And for uh, just being a longtime supporter of the show. Um, you know, I know Brock's a big fan, like I said, and, uh, and I've been listening to the Sprocket podcast for a long time, and I, I highly recommend that. Um, so go check out uh, thesprocketpodcast.com. So uh, yeah, if you if you uh, appreciate what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show. And uh, yeah, and get in touch. Uh, share your ideas for show topics and guests. Um, I have a number of great interviews coming up. Uh, next week's show, I have an interview with Kerry Caffrey, who is a bike safety instructor and advocate in Florida. And, um, and she co-founded a group called Cycling Savvy, which is uh, now nationwide, uh, in the U.S. at least, um, teaching people how to bike safely and confidently. And a lot of things are counterintuitive, and I think uh, everybody will appreciate hearing from that. And uh, I have actually conducted the interview this time, so uh, when I say that it will be on the next episode, um, it, it will. Although... Um, if I can get a hold of uh, Andrew from Americans for Transit, um, that'll probably those two will probably go together. Um, but I might do two separate shows like the same week. So, um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, and yeah, go to criticaltransit.com. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter and uh, streets.mn and uh, share your thoughts. All right, have a good week. <laughs>